But I'm really curious to see what actual change is going to happen. And I hope, I hope there will be some sort of sweeping change in the way that we police our communities. Um, because there is definitely, I mean, our, our, our criminal justice system has been shaped by over-incarceration and over-policing of African-American communities. And just the disproportionate inc- uh, impacts are, are evident in everyday life. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. For our final episode of Access to Justice Week, we're joined by Leslie Ginzel, the Chief of Holistic Services at the Harris County Public Defender's Office and a tireless advocate for underserved communities. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Leslie, I'm I'm sure as with all of us, there's a lot on your mind right now. Uh, What are you thinking about most? What's front of mind for you? Um, I'm in a weird position right now because I'm just transitioning into this new role. And so part of me is constantly focused on how I'm going to build that out, how, how we can build out holistic services in Harris County. Mm-hmm. And then also looking at what this changing demographic of poverty is and what the potential new needs are going to be for the, the clients that we're serving um, and how long it's going to take to dig us back out of it, really. Yeah. Um, And I want to talk more about that, but maybe first you can tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, your, your, your path to where you are today, and what is your role involved as chief of holistic services? Sure, sure. So, um, I've spent really the entirety of my legal career up until May of this year uh, with an organization called Beacon Law. Beacon Law was a program of the Beacon of downtown Houston. It was a homeless services agency that had many different programs, uh, a day center, social work organization, housing, um, and then Beacon Law was the legal arm of it. And we addressed any civil legal need to remove barriers to employment, housing, healthcare. And the real reality of that, you know, we did da- we did our intake work within the day center, and if you looked around the day center and the clients we were serving at the Beacon, the things that brought people to homelessness was it was always mental illness and failure to restabilize from criminal justice involvement, and what that did to a person's access to employment and housing. Um, and so, really, I built that program around removing those barriers. It was driver's license restoration, sealing criminal history, access to disability benefits, um, intervention in landlord-tenant disputes, and then education, educating the community on how to assert their rights in a, um, in a, in a, in a gentle way so that they would get a good response. Um, in January of this year, the chief public defender of Harris County's public defender's office came to me about coming in as a chief of holistic services here at the PD's office to really build out that program. And when I started researching it, I looked at like the model is the Bronx defenders. They are the original holistic defender service, really looking at, you know, every client we get who has a criminal issue, what are all the peripheral things? What are all the ripples that affect their life and their ability to stabilize because of this criminal involvement, you know, um, it's not uncommon that someone loses their housing because they get arrested, they lose their job, their child might be taken by CPS. So I looked at their civil legal services page and it was Beacon Law. It was the blueprint of everything I'd already built. And so at that point I realized like, okay, I can do this. And it's really at this point building 
beacon law on steroids and, and really just having robust services to make sure that every client who comes through this program, I mean, number one, they're always going to have a better outcome on their criminal case because that data is hard and fast and true. The public defender's office gets better outcomes. They're better lawyers in a lot of ways, have better resources. But now if we can also partner that with all the holistic services and social workers and advocates, uh, it can do so much to help the long-term outcomes of these clients and prevent them from recidivating, uh, prevent them from languishing in poverty. So it's a, it's a big goal, but it's really exciting. <laughs> it, it is really exciting. And I, I think it's such a encouraging way to and innovative way of thinking about justice. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the path to at Beacon Law of thinking about holistic legal services and, and how this, this overall concept of holistic legal services uh, was developed in the first place? Well, the original model was Bronx Defenders and uh, it's been around about 20 years now. Um, at Beacon Law, what's really, I think, ironic. I had never really paid much attention to Bronx defenders because I wasn't a public defender. I didn't deal with the criminal side. And I think it's amazing that inside these two vacuums, the same thing evolved. You know, when we first started Beacon Law, it was, what can a lawyer do to help someone dealing with homelessness? And the, we started identifying, you know, the priority issues and the most effective ways we could help somebody move forward. So many times, 50% of our casework was driver's license restoration, fines and fees that prohibit somebody from having a valid driver's license. And you know how many times that invalid driver's license is the precursor to a higher criminal event that that mm-hmm. is the that's the bait that a cop has to go ahead and like oh well you have an invalid license well i think i smell drugs and it turns this person's life upside down right and you know you can't get a job if you don't have a driver's license that's the easiest way to get your application thrown in the trash so, so you know such a trivial thing but just this thin, thin edge of the wedge for so much other in it the is. Way, so much else in the way of repercussions yeah and then the system has gotten so convoluted and complicated. We did a lot of pro bono work at Beacon Law. And I can't tell you how many times we had IP attorneys from ExxonMobil working through an ID restoration case saying, I can't understand how to get this done. How is this person going to? This is, right. the system is so complex. There's layers upon layers of fines and fees. And, and just, it, it, it's really mind boggling and it's been really exciting. The last few legislative sessions in Texas, there's been a lot of work to peel those back. And I would say we're probably 50% there to creating some real solutions. Um, I'm curious what this legislative session is going to look like because it's, I think everybody's kind of worried, but um, so yeah, the ID restoration stuff, sealing criminal records. It blew my mind that for the longest time, we were the only agency in town that did any kind of record sealing pro bono or free private mm-hmm. attorneys would charge $2,500 for a case that literally cost my organization $50 in paralegal cost. It was absurd. It blows my mind. And it's just, it's, it's especially when someone was low income, when they picked up this charge, they have a legal right to seal it from their record, but some intermediary is going to charge them this exorbitant price for a simple procedure. If you're a lawyer, um, it just blows my mind. We're working on some new ways to make those more effective and draw, hopefully build some much more effective systems. 
And um, not having that sealed can be the difference between a, being able to find employment, being able to get out of a homelessness situation. The, absolutely. And it's, it's $50 of hard cost that's being marked up to $2,500. That's, yeah. that's really incredible. It's, it's unbelievable. And the, the impact that it has on someone's life, being able to seal a criminal record, you know, accessing, especially if it's a felony and something that can come off, like literally we've had so many clients that it was just, it was never them. It was the wrong person was arrested. And now once you're arrested, the implications are so far flung and being able to seal that, the, the impact on housing and employment, and then just a person's own sense of well-being for so many of our clients even if they had some criminal record that would stay, getting rid of a violent offense that they were never actually guilty of, um, if they just had drug cases, it opens up so much, so much more opportunity. Um, and, and then also, a lot of our clients just felt like the system had actually worked for them for a change, that they had been a victim of a very egregious system for a long time, and having that opportunity to kind of feel like they got their rights. Uh, it was really empowering a lot of times. And so I feel like the sort of the goodwill of that also translates a lot for our clients. Yeah, it's literally life-changing. The, yeah. the stakes are that high. And on that note, can you, you you've, you've mentioned a, a couple at a high level, but can you share some personal stories about how you've witnessed access to legal services really having an impact on, on those in underserved communities? Absolutely. Um, I always go back to one of my favorite stories. He's one of my favorite clients. He gave me the authority to give his name. His name is Jeffrey Tate. And one of the biggest issues we see with a lot of our clients, you'd be shocked at how many legal name changes we have to file every year. Pre 9-11, your birth certificate, you didn't have to have it, didn't really mean much. Post 9-11, it's the holy grail of who you are. And what we see a lot is middle-aged men and women who, when they were born, mom and dad weren't married. They have mother's maiden name on the birth certificate. Mom and dad get married. And from then on, the child's name is dad's married name. And so we had a client come to us. He had been homeless on the streets in Houston for two years. He had found, he, he, he was completely unaccustomed to homelessness, number one. And he had found a hedgerow by the Holocaust Museum in, mid, in, uh, in sort of the museum district area that he said was quiet enough and it was safe enough. He could hide. And that's where he slept for two years, banging his head against the wall because he had an error on his birth certificate. He hired a lawyer. His mother lived in Colorado, sent him down some money, hired a lawyer. She said, sure, I'll do it. No problem. And she didn't because he had an issue. He had been convicted of a felony and there's a rule that says you can't change your name. Well, that is your, if you're trying to escape your name, he was trying to get to his name right. and yeah, I mean, it was an error on his birth certificate. He's not trying to escape his criminal record. He had it. He owned it. Um, we were able to file a declaratory judgment to get his name change basically effectively changed say that he's one in the same as this person. And the judge did not like it. She didn't like it at all. She took us back in chambers and was very concerned, like what's really going on. But once we explained it all to her, she's like, oh, this makes sense. Why is this an issue? So she signed it. Six months later, he links, he, he friends me on LinkedIn. He's a stevedore, which I found out is someone who loads cargo onto gigantic container ships. Uh, he's a stevedore at the Port of Houston, making 50 bucks an hour. And he has a house in Pasadena. And he's 
living life. Like he should never have been homeless for two years because of a, a four letter word on his birth certificate. But that was the be all end all to him being able to restabilize. And it was really amazing. And he actually, the judge that granted his order was a Republican. And he said he's never voted for a Republican in his life, but he voted for her in her next election. <laughs> because he's so grateful. <laughs> little way of saying thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I... These two examples, sealing a, a, a criminal record and, and having a, a, a birth certificate fixed, and especially when you get caught in these catch-22, rock-and-hard-place kind of mm -hmm. situations in the legal system, you realize that there is the, the impact that, that a lawyer can have is so tremendous, and it isn't necessarily a huge effort to, to have that level of impact. No, it's just knowing the systems, knowing how to act how to advocate for your client, how to navigate those systems. They're not set up for people to advocate for themselves pro se. It's, it's just complicated enough and just adversarial enough. It's very difficult. It takes a very strong-willed and intelligent person to do it on their own. Um, it's kind of the cards are stacked against people accessing justice individually. Um, but it's not complex work, and it's really about a volume of work to really help all the people who really have these issues. We've been working on a project around criminal record sealing and looking at the data and building out a system to mass seal criminal records based on the data. And right now in Harris County, we know there are over 4 million low-level offenders, one-time misdemeanants, people who are not criminals, they made a mistake, who have the eligibility to seal their criminal record. And I guarantee they don't know. And they don't know right. how to access the system. And can you think about that economic impact, the, that many people who are burdened in employment and opportunity because of a minor mistake they made in their 20s and now they're in their 30s and it, it just, it's mind boggling. Hopefully there's yeah, going to change. It is. And you obviously did incredible work at, at, at Beacon Law and we actually at, at Cleo recognized that incredible work with one of our Reisman Awards last year. Uh, and I'm I'm curious to to hear about this transition from Beacon Law to the public defender's office. What's the same and what is different in that role? You know, the the biggest thing is at Beacon Law, I built it from the ground up. I knew where everything was. I un, like it was the system that I built. And right. now I'm stepping into a very large organization and trying to understand all the inner workings of it and then how to build something new and overlay that on a pre-existing system. Um, it's going to be interesting. And I think uh, I'm excited and, and, and there's a lot of good momentum within the office. Everyone who's come to this office has come because they appreciate the idea of holistic defense and they want to do that. A lot of criminal practitioners don't know what it is. They, they just don't understand civil legal aid. And so a lot of it is going to be a lot of education and getting people on board and understanding that, you know, what I can do in the background is going to support your criminal practice, is going to help you mitigate the issues in your criminal cases and, and help you get better outcomes for your client in the criminal case and then also better outcomes for their lifetime. Um, prevent the destabilization that happens in the wake of this criminal matter. Oh, it's going to be interesting. Uh, it's going to be interesting staffing up in a, in, a, in a day of social distancing. But one of the things that's amazing, I was talking to Derek earlier, uh, the vast majority of the civil legal work, you can do it remotely. It's all cloud-based. You know, we were doing a record number of expunctions and non-disclosures of criminal record sealing at Beacon Law before, as this whole uh, 
as the pandemic began, because you can just, you can keep processing it. It all can still happen in the background and doesn't get disrupted very much. So I'm excited to see what we're able to accomplish and, and how it's going to continue to roll out. And I'm, I'm curious, this seems like a, an innovative concept and an innovative role. Is there something special about the way Harris County thinks about access to justice and this, this kind of a role in particular? Well, Harris County in the last few years has had a pretty big progressive swing politically, and that has been amazing. Um, there have been some really amazing outcomes. There's also, through some litigation, Harris County was a, just, just is going through a implementation phase for a big federal bail reform lawsuit. There's a lot of discussion across the United States about cash bail and the reality that if you are poor, you may have to lose your entire livelihood stuck in jail because you can't afford bail, not because you're a risk, but because of the cash bail system. And so Harris County is in an implementation phase for a federal lawsuit um, that was good. It, it, it pushed the boundaries of what is appropriate and necessary in criminal justice reform. And there's a lot of momentum behind that uh, mm-hmm. to, to treat those struggling with poverty with the same respect as you would someone who can lay down a $10,000 check to get out of jail. Um, and the reality that if someone doesn't have to spend time in jail, they can continue working. They can continue taking care of their family. Um, they're, it's just so much more effective long-term for their stability and the outcomes in their criminal cases are more, uh, are, are, are more positive. Generally you see a lot of people take plea agreements because they're tired of sitting in jail and their attorney comes to them and says, if you sign today, you can walk out today. And that's how you get people pleading to things they never did. The cash bail system forcing people to struggle and stagnate in a jail. Um, especially in this day of COVID, Right. It creates an undue pressure that should never be part of your plea determination. Um, So. Right. You're you're taking a a plea you shouldn't just for health and safety reasons. Exactly. Exactly. I had a client years ago who he, when he was 19 years old, picked up a sex offense. And so he had a target on his back for his entire life. When he came to us, he was in his mid forties. And he had literally just spent three years on pre-trial at Harris County jail. So had not been convicted of a crime, spent three years waiting, missed his mother's funeral. When she was on her deathbed, he got a phone call with her and she was like, I know you didn't do this. Don't plead to come to my funeral, stick it out, do what's right. At three years, he finally gave up. And they said, if you sign this, you walk out today. So he did. Then he requested the entire file and found out he had been excluded by DNA evidence and a whole ton of other things. And they knew he didn't commit the crime, but it was just leverage and wait him out and eventually he'll take it and we'll count it as a win. And there's just something just horribly, horribly wrong about that system and the ability to put people in that precarious situation. So all that to say, Harris County has got a very progressive momentum right now to really change the way uh, criminal justice is, is done. Um, mm-hmm. Then also uh, understanding that we need to help our immigrant communities. We need to help our low-income communities. The more we invest in services to support them, the less likely they'll need county resources. It's, 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 it makes so much sense. If you help people take care of themselves, like this is not a partisan issue. If you can help someone get back into employment and they don't need food stamps anymore, that's better for everyone. No one wants people to ride government benefits. So let's get them back into 
a stable place, get them back into an employable place and, and back on their feet. It takes support to get there. Between COVID-19 and the George Floyd protests and all, all the, I think, appropriate uh, frustration and anger we, we, we have out there today, we've got, I think, access to justice highlighted in, in more stark terms than we have in, in recent memory. Uh, can, can you tell us what you're seeing around access to justice in your role? You, you've talked about bits of, of it over the course of our conversation, but I'm wondering at a more holistic level, at a, a macro level, uh, what you think needs to, to change at the various levels of, of this system and, mm. and how we can move toward a, a system that is maybe more, uh, more accessible. Mm -hmm. Well, we need more legal services, that's for sure. And I'm, my biggest, one of my biggest concerns right now is because of the financial crisis that a lot of funding is going to dry up and we can't afford to lose it. Um, one of the biggest factors on the, on the COVID-19 front that we've been talking about regionally is housing. Um, Harris County is second only in the United States in evictions to New York City. The big difference is New York City has a right to counsel. Harris County has no right to counsel. With a right to counsel, you are going to prevent 60% of evictions. With no right to counsel, 95% are default judgments move out, and there's no discussion. So we're going to have a landslide of evictions. Um, there are going to be a, a, a lot of people who are unemployed and going to need to access unemployment benefits if possible. Um, we don't have the housing capacity for this low-income population, um, that is going the, the the face of homelessness is drastically going to change. That is my biggest concern right now. Um, the other large concern is around domestic violence and child abuse. Um, you cannot put uh, abusers trapped in homes with their spouses and children and expect good outcomes. And one of the biggest concerns on the education side is the teachers are who usually flag that stuff and the teachers aren't seeing the kids. So it's going to be interesting to see what outcomes come from that. Um, I think the biggest concern long-term is going to be employment and how people, how low income people who are living paycheck to paycheck in jobs that may no longer exist for some period of time are going to find their way back into the economy. Uh, and what, what those effects will be and what the sort of trickle down of those, of those jobs or lack thereof are going to be. Um, in terms of George Floyd and the protest and everything that's going there, I mean, Houston, they expected on Tuesday to have 20,000 people turn out. It was close to 70 uh, wow. in downtown Houston. It was, and I've got to say, I've been really impressed. Um, the, George Floyd's family, a lot of them are still in the Houston area, and he had a huge imprint in Third Ward, and it has been very peaceful. Um, it has been very moving protest, um, and it's being heard. Uh, Houston's a very diverse city. Um, it's a, one of the, it was, Harris County was one of the first uh, majority minority cities, so there's more ethnically diverse community than there is Caucasian. Um, and, and, and it shows, it shows, um, there's been a lot of really good outpouring of support. Um, the thing, I don't know how that's going to end and resolve in any realistic sense. I used to, we used to always see at Beacon Law record ceiling where someone would ha like the only crime they had was interference in the duties of an officer. That means you were doing absolutely nothing wrong, but the officer didn't like you saying it. 
and he arrested you for it. And white people don't get that. I've never seen a white person with that crime. I mean, it is definitely racially disproportionately affected. So uh, there, you know, I've really loved people explaining the system isn't broken. The system is exactly how we built it because that has been the systematic, like it's the systematic racism that, that has created our policing. And there's a lot that needs to change. There are some really good actors in the HPD, Harris County uh, Police Divisions, but there are some really bad ones. And I've seen some really ugly outcomes. Um, I'm not sure what's going to have to happen. Chief Chief Art Acevedo with uh, Houston Police Department has been very active and very supportive and very engaged in all the protests locally. Um, But I'm really curious to see what actual change is going to happen. And I hope... I hope there will be some sort of sweeping change in the way that we police our communities um, because there is definitely, I mean, our, our, our criminal justice system has been shaped by over-incarceration and over-policing of African-American communities and just the disproportionate inc- uh, impacts are, are evident in everyday life. One of the things when that you, got, oh, go ahead. I was just going to, and you can finish your, your thought, but the, the following question I was going to ask is when, when you talk to individual lawyers that are looking to have, have impact, have some kind of positive impact on moving things forward, what your advice for them is? Oh, be vocal. Use your voice. Um, I've participated in a few conversations recently, recently about sort of racial anxiety and the odd place. And I, as a white woman in civil legal services that serve a predominantly African-American and Hispanic population, have struggled with this the entirety of my career, like not wanting to co-opt someone's story or take it away from them. But then how can I create a better platform to help other people understand what we have been doing so wrong? Um, And and I think the biggest thing we can do is I, I, I love the idea that if you're silent, you're, you're, you're siding with the wrong team. Like you need to be vocal. Yeah. You need to yeah. advocate. Um, it doesn't, it, it doesn't do much to just change your, your, your Facebook to a, a black box for a day. Like the, right. Silence is complicity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then, and then trying to find the way to do that, the most effective way, the most supportive way without undercutting pe- people's real life experience. I've not, I've not had a lived experience as a black woman in America, but I want to learn from them. And then I always, I always struggle with, uh, it's really just like a feeling of white guilt. Like I've not had to endure those things and it's not fair. And by birth, I was granted this blessing that is just, it, it, it makes no sense. It makes no logical sense. And if it can't, I don't know, that has allowed me to be in the position that I am. And if, if through that, I can work to make these systems more fair and just and accessible to all the people who drew the short end of the stick for mm-hmm. one reason or another, then hopefully we can kind of keep moving it forward and, and repair some of the wrongs. Ugh, and don't let me change get... the system. Yeah. 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 That, that, that's the thing. The system, it's not broken. It's how we built it. We need a new one. And that starts with acknowledging where we are and what we've done to communities of color and, and how we've set 
the bar so high to be able to succeed in life um, from schooling, from uh, just, just foundational issues. Yeah. When you think about some of the ways that this crisis is, is potentially improving access to justice as paradoxical as that might seem, we're seeing it number one, create a, a whole raft of new issues and uh, a tsunami of legal issues in the areas you mentioned, housing and employment, uh, you name it, we're going to see a, a huge spike in, in need for legal services. But on the, on the flip side, it seems like we're seeing technology and, and other factors, you know, actually potentially set the system up to move with more velocity and, and, and potentially actually increase access. Uh, in, in the sense, earlier this week, we spoke to, to Mary McQueen from the, the National Center for State Courts, and, and she commented on the fact that the jury selection process was actually, when it was done by Zoom, was creating a more diverse pool of of jurors and, and that we may be able to create a more diverse and and more equal justice system thanks to technology. And there's still some tough challenges to solve, the, the digital divide and, and and access to technology, but the the physical access to courts is such a barrier for for some individuals that that her hope was technology would actually in some ways both improve the efficiency of courts and improve the reach of courts and, and potentially have knock-on effects around, uh, for example, the, the diversity of, 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 of jurors and jury trials. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious what impacts you're seeing uh, and, and what, you, what impacts you might anticipate uh, this crisis will, will have on, uh, on those aspects and others and, and what their net long-term impact on access to justice might be. Now, I, I, I love that. I love that, that, that this pandemic is actually creating more diversity in those systems because it's true. The only people who show up for jury duty are people who have jobs that will allow them to or are retired and able to, and that tends to swing more Caucasian and not representative of the community as a whole. It's um, a huge source of embedded bias. Again, when you talk about the way the system's built, there's absolutely. structural bias at a foundational level there. Completely, completely. Um, I love the idea right before this all started, and I think the pandemic is going to have a great force. Um, one of the biggest issues we had at Beacon Law was even in Harris County, only about two thirds of the county has metro access, and several of the justice courts are miles away from metro. And so we, as a rule, didn't travel with our clients. Um, we didn't put them in our car with us. There were just too many things that could come up. So we would always advocate and try to help them get where they needed to be. But sometimes client just couldn't get to court. And that shouldn't be the determination of whether or not they're due their day in court, whether they're due a finding of indigence to have their fees waived. And so something we were pushing was uh, video conference hearings for indigents with some of the courts that were outlying. And I think that is definitely going to come underway because now they're used to it and they're finding it's easier. They didn't really want all these people in their courtroom. They just want to be able to dispense with justice. And if you can get the person on a call like this, you know, why not? Um, there has been a great embrace of technology. And I think there's, there are going to be good things coming out of this. Um, I would love to plug one thing that we're really working on. There's a thing nationally called the Clean Slate Initiative that's mm -hmm. about top-down record sealing. 
Pennsylvania was the first state to pass it in 2018. As of 2019, they started sealing. They've sealed over 30 million records to date through that initiative of just identifying all the records that we shouldn't be looking at. We shouldn't be using bad data to make decisions in hiring and housing and all these things. And since Pennsylvania passed it, it's passed in Utah, California, Kentucky just passed a really good bill. Texas is prime for it. And especially looking at the unemployment we're going to be facing. And if we want to get people back into employment now more than ever, that criminal record from years ago that maybe wasn't an issue when you were stably employed is going to be a massive issue now. And the more effectively we can use technology and just seal things top down, not rely on individual plaintiffs to know that they're eligible and then how to navigate the court system. It's an archaic system. If we notified everyone who who was eligible that they could come steal their record and they did, it would shut down the system. It's not built for that. Um, But doing it top down and just saying, you know what, these things are eligible, let's seal it and be done and let that individual move forward. It's huge. And I'm really hoping we're, we're working on some things for the next legislative session. It doesn't cost anything and the economic impact of just getting people back into employment, having industry have access to a a hiring base that's so much more um, accurate. (laughs) Like the data is, you're not looking at just bad data and making poor hiring decisions. Uh, The the impact could be huge. And that's technology. That's the data we know we have. Uh, And it wouldn't be that difficult. So um, for any state that is looking at a clean slate initiative, do it because it makes so much sense. Uh, we're, 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 our criminal record systems are based on an outdated philosophy and it's, it's just, we haven't kept up with our abilities. You know, we're, 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 we're treating our criminal background systems like it was in the 1980s and not acknowledging that we have cell phones that can run in 30 seconds, a background check on anyone we've ever wanted to know. And that the data is never accurate. And so we, we've got to right size those issues. Um, and, and yeah. it's, it's, it's bad data, but as you pointed out, such high stakes data for the individual. This is Absolutely. the thing that's standing between them and the job they want and being able to provide for themselves and their family. And and you, you mentioned the, the economic impact just in terms of employment, but you think about the, the impact on society when you think about the knock-on effects of the crimes this is indirectly causing and the mm-hmm. homelessness it's causing, the other social costs. Yeah. It might be incurring. It's, it's enormous. And when you think, you know, if the primary breadwinner of a household of four picks up some kind of case, accurate or not, dismissed or not, that, I mean, it, even if it's dismissed, that will prevent them from accessing employment. That will trickle down to the entire family subsiding in poverty for yeah. what duration of time. And then what are the impacts on the children? You know, what you know, we've lived in a tough on crime world for the last 30 years. Right now, one out of every two children has a parent with a criminal record. That's absurd. And not reflective of the criminogenic nature of our society. It's, it's, and the detrimental impact of that is, is, it needs to be undone, it, honestly. And, and we're going to figure out ways to do that. Did I hear you right that 30 million criminal records were sealed? In Pennsylvania alone. Pennsylvania alone. Wow. We were running data uh, on, the, on the, so in most states, there's a central record holder. Um, it's like DPS in Texas, Department of Public Safety. They are the central record holder for all conviction data. 
from that, we pulled down that data and started analyzing it. And in the state of Texas, you're allowed to seal a first and only misdemeanor conviction. That's one way to seal a criminal record. There's a million other reasons why you can get into that pool. But in Texas right now, there are over 10 million individuals with a first and only misdemeanor conviction that's more than three years old. That's crazy. That's 10 million people in the state of Texas walking around with a bad criminal record that they don't know they conceal. And what are the implications on that, of that on them, their families? Um, when we ran the total of the data between deferred adjudications, expunctions, I mean, it's, it's in the tens of millions time and over again. It's, it's really unbelievable. And we're making people wear this on their back as a, just a, a, a scarlet letter of the thing you did that time when you made a mistake 10 years ago. It's just, it's, it's, it's not the, just the, the scale of this is actually way beyond what what I might have guessed walking into this conversation. You're, you're, you're talking about close to a, a third of the population of, of Texas Absolutely. that has an opportunity to have a, a criminal record expunged. And when, when this works correctly, when you do have a clean slate program like this in place, do, does the individual just receive a letter in the mail saying for your information, your criminal record has been expunged or does it require action on their part? No, it is just literally that. It was, it was processed. Um, with the Pennsylvania bill, there was a lot of publicity around it. I mean, it took two legislative sessions to get it passed. Um, there were, uh, is it the Philadelphia Eagles? There were a few football players who came in and really helped push it. And they had broad media campaigns so that anybody who could be affected would know that they were. And then I believe they had a website where you could go find out if your record was included. And that was something we were looking at doing here locally. Um, because you don't want someone to not know that they had something sealed and then disclose it on an right. application uh, just right. unknowingly. Um, so the, it, it's, it's complex how you deal with those communication issues. But, you know, in a perfect world, if it's DPS that's doing it, they have your most recent address. The big issue that we've been facing in trying to do this locally is the best address we have is the address that you had on file when you were prosecuted. And often that's not going to be accurate currently. Um, but the Department of Public Safety will have your most recent address. And so you should get notified, yes, this was sealed. You do not have to disclose this. Um, with a lot of things, it's moving toward a system of non-disclosure as opposed to expunction. It, they have different vernacular in every state, but law enforcement supports it because with non-disclosure, the file still exists somewhere. And if you commit the same offense again, and it looks like a pattern of crime for you, they still have that record and can use that potentially to enhance. Um, but if you never offend again, it's irrelevant. It's not used for employment searches. It's not used for housing searches. It's sealed from the public record completely, only used by law enforcement or like state licensing. So it, it really helps get support from all of the constituents. So that's it's a, so interesting. Are, are there other solutions in the same vein that you, you kind of regard in the, this, this is such an obvious win we should, we should be doing this just preemptively. Yeah, I mean, that one is the biggest one in my mind because I've seen the devastating effects that a single arrest can have. Um, the other big thing, there's a, a national uh, group working on free to drive, that there should never be a fine or fee that should preempt your ability to have a valid driver's license. I think right now, the only state that has that system is Montana. Because good God, if you lose your driver's license in Montana, what are you going to do? <laughs> right. Montana. <laughs> like, so yeah. it's amazing. In Texas, you can lose your license for failure to pay 
anything. There's the, the, the web of fines and fees. It's unbelievable. And then knowing which agency they're actually supposed to go to. A client will think, well, I paid the court. What's the problem? It's, well, there's another system that you didn't pay, this additional fee that the court has to send to another third-party corporation who's making money off of the system. Uh, and that's, there's two or three of them. And, you know, it used to be the case that court costs in, say, a criminal prosecution above a, a traffic ticket, those were a civil debt. They weren't a criminal debt. It couldn't be held against you in that same way. But we've created new systems where they can stop your license for failure to pay a civil debt. And it, it, the burden is just unbelievable. We, we, we were doing a project at, at Beacon Law that was a driving while license invalid diversion. In Harris County, they process about 4,500 Class B driving while license invalid or suspended license cases annually. That means that people are going to jail for driving with an invalid license. The first five clients who came through that program had over $28,000 in debt. That was it. They were working poor. They couldn't afford it. If a poor person goes into a court unrepresented and says, I can't afford this, they're like, yeah, I don't care. You can afford a cell phone. You can afford my fine. It's crazy. And it's, it's, it's unjust. <laughs> it's yeah. great. And so well, it's, as, as you pointed out earlier, it's this uh, system we've architected with so much bias embedded in it and, you know, m maybe some unintended consequence, but certainly such an obvious design from the ground up system to discriminate against uh, people that are, are under-resourced. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Leslie, this has been such an eye-opening and, and, uh, important conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I, I, I wonder if, if for a parting thought, uh, you could leave us with one take takeaway from this episode you might leave as a, uh, something to reflect on or a call to action for our audience. Ah, man, biggest call to action I can think of. The biggest thing that is keeping me awake right now is what is going to happen to our legal services systems in the wake of this economic crisis. There will be an overwhelming demand and need for legal services. And at that same time, states are going to be slashing legal services budgets. The federal government is likely to do the same and we can't afford it. Um, donate to your local mm -hmm. Access to Justice Foundation. Uh, donate to your local legal aid. Volunteer. Take a case at Beacon Law a driver's license restoration case or a record sealing case, it was th it's three hours of an attorney's time. Three hours and you can change somebody's life. Yeah, that um, is truly incredible to think about. It's, it's amazing. And we try to make it so easy. <laughs> That's the other thing. A plug for Beacon Law. You can be anywhere and advocate. You don't have to be Texas licensed. That's the other thing. Well, lawyers need to know. You can advocate across the U.S. if you're pro bono. Just about every state will, will let you practice. You don't have to do the whole pro hoc vice, all those things. But you can advocate for just about anyone and reach out to the city centers. They're going to have the hardest times. They're going to need the most support. Um, yeah, yeah. Give of yourselves. Give of your wallet uh, and help legal services because the impact there will help us get out of this economic crisis faster. That is, that is a truth. Well, that's such a great way to end our conversation. I really appreciate you joining us today, Leslie, and keep up the amazing work. Thank you so much. This has been great. I can't believe it's already, I feel like this was five minutes. <laughs> I can talk. <laughs> it did fly by. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com.